What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 8 of season 3 of So What, hosted by ya gal, Isabella Rosner. We are nearly in the second half of the season. Can you believe it? Time flies when the passage of time is all weird and messed up. But the passage of time does mean it's nearly Christmas, and so if you celebrate that, Merry Christmas! And if you don't celebrate it, I hope you have a wonderful day anyway. I'm Jewish but am obsessed with Christmas, so I will be stuffing my face with gluten-free mince pies. Anywho, today's episode is an interview with the wonderful Claire McRee, Associate Curator at the Allentown Art Museum in Eastern Pennsylvania. We're going to look at curating needlework and textiles more generally at regional museums. I talked to Melinda Watt and Amelia Peck about curating that stuff at big national encyclopedic art museums last season, but we got a look at how needlework and textiles are researched and displayed at smaller scale, more local institutions. And in the interview, we're touching on how these smaller regional museums deal with very important matters like representation and decolonization. Delight! You know what's also delightful? The So What social media spiel. As you well know at this point, or maybe not, you can see images of what we discuss in today's interview, as well as relevant links to stuff on the So What Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages. That's at So What Podcast. You can also see past episodes and all images and links on the pod website, which is sowhatpodcast.com. Yay. Okay, back to it. Today's guest, Clara McCree, is, as I mentioned, the associate curator at the Allentown Art Museum. Luckily for everyone in the Allentown region and for all of us, Claire is passionate about historic costume and textiles and manages to include a lot of textiles in the many exhibitions and installations she curates. She received her MA from the Bard Graduate Center in Decorative Arts, Design History, and Material Culture, where she received the Horowitz Foundation for the Arts Award for her thesis titled The Debutante Slouch, Fashion and the Female Body in the United States, 1912 to 1925. Her areas of specialty include clothing and textiles and the social history of gender, especially as it relates to posture, movement, and the body. I personally love Claire's interest in posture and her MA thesis's focus on slouching because I'm sat here recording this podcast looking like a little shrimp. My back is curved like a C, my posture is so bad, and clearly I do not think about it enough, but obviously I should. Also, two things to mention before we get into the interview. First, I want to give you a sense of scale when I say regional museums. As Claire mentions in the episode, Allentown Art Museum has about 18,000 objects. The Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, has over 2 million. So as you can tell, the Allentown Art Museum has a lot of stuff, but it's on a very different scale to the world's largest art museums. Secondly, you'll hear toward the beginning of our conversation a discussion about dress silks of the 1920s. While not needlework, these designs are very close to my heart, so I thought I'd keep our little chat about them in the episode. I would recommend checking out the select designs I've shared on the So What social media pages, and if you're into them, I would recommend checking out all the amazing and sometimes uncomfortably appropriative prints designed by Cheney, Mallinson, and Staley, America's three big silk companies in the early 20th century. 
I think that anyone who loves textiles would be fascinated by these designs, so I've included some links to learn more about them on the pod's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and website. And now, let's hear the interview. Claire, thank you so much for being here today. I am really, really excited to talk to you. The fact that we met, I don't even know, three years ago, and now here we are reconnecting over needlework and textiles. What a treat. I love that. Amazing. Yes, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So what was your journey to become associate curator at the Allentown Art Museum? And what does being a curator at a regional rather than a more national art museum entail? So I guess I've always been interested in old stuff. It was always fascinating to me. And and history, I grew up um, in a family where both of my parents were history buffs. My dad's a history professor. We went to historic sites for all our family vacations. So I was always fascinated by the past and especially just details of everyday life. And, and my mom taught me how to sew when I was a kid. And I really enjoyed that. And by the time I was in middle school and high school, I was really interested in the history of fashion in particular and browsing lots of reprints of Sears Roebuck catalogs and stuff like that at our local library. And when I was in college and thinking about writing a senior thesis, it occurred to me for the first time that that could be a thing that I did as a scholarly thing and not just for fun. Like it could also be a serious, worthy thing of research. Um, So that was really exciting. And I was getting interested in museums by that point because I knew I really liked research and And I liked the idea of being in a museum and having kind of a more public audience or venue Mm -hmm. um, than as opposed to academia, where the research tends to be more for an academic audience. Right. And yeah, so I was interested in that and figuring things out. I interned at my school's art museum and realized that I loved everything that was not fine art, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. So yes. I wrote a, learned about a Jacquard coverlet and Greek coins. Those were all good. Um, so I ended up doing a master's in decorative arts, design history, and material culture at the Bard Graduate Center. How cool. Um, yeah, which was so fun. I was, it was so fun to be around. Everyone was interested in the same kinds of like weird, not art history things that I was. Yes. So that was really great. Yeah. Yeah. And so from there, um, it was good because I could, you know, I learned about not, I focused on textiles, but also got, you know, background kind of in a more broad way. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And so while I was there, I led some gallery tours at my school's gallery and I really loved, you know, working with people and teaching and doing that. Um, and I did have a, a temp position in education, um, for a bit. And that made me realize that I loved leading tours, but I didn't like kind of program administration sort of stuff. Um, But I also wasn't willing to have a freelance schedule that would allow me to do the kind of like, you know, leading tours all the time sort of thing. And so, yes, I was looking more at curatorial positions and um, was lucky enough to end up here, which was, which is really amazing. There's, there's a really good textile collection here. um, And also, you know, a fine art collection as well. What a good story. Like just like a really <laughs> good trajectory. And being a curator at like a regional museum means that you 
are working with everything, right? It's not like you're the curator of textiles, curator of, I don't know, stone. That's not even right. <laughs> but you're, you're like the curator of the whole, everything though, like a lot of stuff. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So we have, we have two curators on staff and yeah. So that's one thing that's really fun about being at a smaller museum is that I do get to work with really varied materials. Um, so I've worked on photography exhibitions. I've worked with our American art collection. I created an iPad interactive for our Frank Lloyd Wright room. Um, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's exciting. You know, it's fun that I get to learn about a lot of different things. Um, you know, sometimes I'm like, Ooh, I really, you know, I really wish I had more time to dedicate just to this one thing or like spend all my time reading about sixties fashion or that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, but it's also fun to, you know, not be pigeonholed into a single role and have kind of different types of work that I'm doing on different days. Yeah. Jack of yeah. all trades. Like right. you, it basically forces you to be a Renaissance woman, which is yes. <laughs> very cool. I do get to be a little bit more hands-on with the collection than I might at a, a larger museum where people have more specialized roles. Um, that makes sense. And so that's, you know, that can be a little bit overwhelming or stressful at times. Like I worked on an exhibition of turn of the century clothing um, and the new woman last fall and spring. And that was just a joy because that's one of my favorite eras. Mm -hmm. And it was really fun to look at clothing and how it relates to the idea of the new woman and ideas about femininity in that era. And it was also you know, kind of overwhelming because there were so many mannequins to dress. So I'm really glad, you know, I'm not at a tiny museum where I'm like one of two staff people total mm -hmm. and I've cut my own labels, which is great because I have done that and did not like it. Generally, um, one of my colleagues handles all of the mounting and stuff. And in this case, because of my sewing garment expertise, the mounting was on my plate. So that was a challenge, but it was also really exciting to, I'm really interested in the idea of the body and silhouette and posture. And so getting to work so closely with the garments, reshaping the mannequins. Um, I made a, a reproduction of a princess slip for one of the lingerie dresses. Oh yeah. Um, and it was just so cool to have all of these different skills coming together, the, like my research work side and my sewing side. So that was really fun. How cool. You walk in with such a strong foundation, but you are still learning every day. Out of curiosity, I definitely looked this up, but I can't remember. How many objects are there at the Allentown Art Museum? We have about 18,000, maybe a little more right now. And about half the collection is textiles, which <gasps> is amazing and exciting. And a lot of people don't know that in part because, you know, it's harder to get textiles on view in the galleries. There are more mm -hmm. logistics and stuff. Um, but, you know, it's a really important part of our collection. and. Um, you know, being here, I'm really excited to be here and to get to work with this amazing collection and also to advocate for it and boost it and get it into the galleries as much as I can. Yeah. So, yeah. Totally. Oh, mm, love that. How did all of the textiles end up there? Were there like certain, were there like a few collectors or have people just like bit by bit donated over the years? That's a great question. So we had some major gifts in the seventies from Kate Fowler, Merle Smith. She was descended from, um, she was part of a family that was related to 
the inventor of the Reaper Thresher. Um, so there was family money in the early oh. 20th century. And her father was interested in arts and culture and she and he traveled when she was young. And when she became older, she also traveled with um, her stepmother and other, other women in her circle. And she was especially interested in the idea of textiles and craft and preserving traditions. And so as she traveled, she, she collected um, and yeah, and she traveled quite broadly in the first decade or so of the 20th century. And, and also was purchasing things from dealers in the States as well. Mm. And so, so her gift in her gifts in the seventies really created this foundation for the museum's collection. So we have these, these really great examples of global needlework traditions um, and women's needlework across the Silk Road and the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean region. So that's really amazing. She also collected designer silks from the 20s and 30s like mm -hmm. H.R. Mallinson, <gasps> Bailey. Yes. <laughs> we should talk about so, that after. Okay. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, she was, so she was, you know, she had a really good eye for seeing that these were worthy of being collected. It was good design and interesting in a cultural historical sense. So we have a collection of about 700 samples of these silks. Um, and she was thinking about, you know, she was originally, she was going to open her own museum, um, which ended up not happening for kind of logistical reasons, having a family, getting married. Um, and the collection ended up descending through a family member to our museum. The other, one other area that was really interesting was a lot of kind of propaganda oriented textiles around World War II. So um, examples of Australian and American and British. And um, we also have a few Japanese textiles that are propaganda as well. So that's really cool. She was just very good at, you know, thinking about what was, seeing what was interesting and um, noteworthy in her own time to save for future generations. How rad. I love her. Oh my gosh. Wow. So the Staley silks, the Mallinson silks, I've never discussed on this podcast, but they are very, very close to my heart. I haven't talked about them because they're not needlework, but I mean, great opportunity to talk about them because they are hugely significant in the development of American-made dress textiles. And they're just so cool. I will just tell people right sure. now, give a little bit of context. In the 1920s, a few silk manufacturing companies based in America kind of noticed that they were falling behind uh, European-made silk fabrics and and sort of design and they had a little freak out. And then everybody was like, oh, we should probably make some American centric textiles. So I think Staley was the first to like really do like an America only kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? With their Americana, uh, their Americana line from what, 1925 to 28. And then- Mal Yeah, all of them were around like 26, 27, yeah. right in there. Mid yeah. 20s. And then Mallinson and Cheney, those two other kind of uh, big silk hitters were like, wait, us too, me as well, please. Mm -hmm. And they started doing things like, I can't remember which one of them did the like Native American line, the earlier, like the early colonial. Mallinson, yeah, Mallinson did okay. the American Indian series. Yes, early um, American, Native American, National Parks. Right. And then Cheney, I think then it must be Cheney who did I guess this is more close to the thirties. They were like, how about we just bring American like painters in 
and they can design pieces that then will inspire us to make silks. So they had like Georgia O'Keeffe, right? Do like a painting. And they were like, great, we'll put the O'Keeffe painting in the shop window and then we'll make a silk based on that painting. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting. There was actually the curator at my grad school's gallery worked, um, did an exhibition on the design of these silks more on the earlier side, like the teens to twenties cool. and looking at this idea of kind of American nationalism and the idea of especially pulling on indigenous work to create designs that were, they, you know, seen as analogous to drawing on Greek and Roman heritage in Europe. Mm-hmm. This was like America's Greece and Rome, which, you know, is really problematic and um, something that brings up all of these issues about appropriation now. Um, but at that time, it was these designers really saw that as American heritage that they could draw on. It was, and that it was, you know, good design that was able to promote this modern aesthetic that would help them catch up to European design. Yeah, and so since since that gift, that kind of established textiles as a thing that the museum was interested in collecting, and so um, we definitely had you know several other major gifts and collectors, um, including there was one collector, Rosalind Miller, who really focused on American materials. Um, there's the local costume collector, Eleanor Lobner, who um, donated a you know 19th and 20th century women's fashion to us. Oh. Um, and we've had, yeah, so we've had, we've been lucky enough to have, you know, really varied donations since then that have built up this kind of, you know, exciting and global collection. It's interesting with, so with the exhibition Collecting Across Cultures, which looks at Japanese textiles and mostly American collectors, though certainly Europeans were also collecting this kind of material. Mm -hmm. One thing for this exhibition, I really wanted to focus on or make it apparent to visitors, how did the textiles get here? Why are they here as opposed to in Japan? and thinking about, you know, some of those complex stories. And so wanting to highlight more about, you know, including on the label with the ID information, you know, as much as I know about when it was collected and who collected it and how, um, and, and thinking about that, because it is, you know, this basis for our global collection is really predicated on um, the money of, you know, privileged white, people, you know, often industrialists from the earlier part of the 20th century. And so it's exciting to be able to celebrate this diversity of materials in our collection, but also, you know, complicated at the same time when, you know, kind of, I think, especially in the past, the story has been told, oh, this person was able to retire at 25 with family money, and then he traveled the world. And isn't that, isn't that so fun to think about? And, you know, and, and that feels kind of a little bit icky or uncomfortable in some mm-hmm. ways, especially that kind of tone in the, you know, in label text that, um, you know, I think it's great to celebrate the crafts and, and it's great that it's wonderful to have access to these objects that these collectors wanted to preserve this kind of material. And we have it here now. Um, but, you know, it's also complicated thinking about those histories and what's implicated in 
these individuals' ability to collect as well. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that leads really well into questions that I will ask later, <laughs> maybe craft a little bit. But I think, yeah, even the title of that exhibition, which is Collecting Across Cultures, Japanese Textiles in the West, you just know that you're going to have to contend with some real some real white people uh, abroad wreaking havoc vibes. But I, that's Definitely. an important thing to absolutely like a really important thing to contend with because so many major and regional American museums are, have built a foundation on the collections of these late 19th, early 20th century kind of quote unquote ethnographer collectors mm-hmm. who had a real genuine interest in this stuff and who have made it possible for us to be able to study all of these rich materials far from Japan and other places halfway across the world, but their collecting leads to some real problems and conversations about representation, decolonization, that sort of stuff. Definitely. Yeah. And, and with that exhibition, so the reason, so it's a very small kind of rotation-based installation. We usually have three or four textiles on view at a time and we're going through about six rotations total. So one thing that's kind of fun about that is getting to sort of re-envision or try out different things and different rotations in terms of interpretation and how, you know, the structure of what is the theme that we're focusing on. Um, But the whole reason that, you know, we're able to do that is as a, um, you know, it's kind of leading into, it's adjacent to our Frank Lloyd Wright room. Mm-hmm. And so Frank Lloyd Wright is well known as a collector of Japanese ukiyo-e woodblock prints, but he also collected Japanese textiles as well and on also other East Asian materials. And so, so that's kind of the link and the way that we're able to tie this in and that I'm able to be like textiles on view. This is a way to do it, you know. Really? Um, so that so that connection is important and thinking about the politics of collecting and how these textiles were viewed in the West, but it was really important to me with this exhibition that it was not one-sided and that it also included information about the Japanese context and the cultural, you know, specific cultural meanings in Japan or, you know, political cultural situations um, under the Meiji Empire that led under Meiji rule that led to these, um, you know, why these textiles were, you know, being sold to collectors. And that's been interesting, you know, trying to balance those factors, especially when you're writing a label that's very short and you only have a tiny bit of room. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of, it's a lot of information to pack in and important information to pack on a tiny little label. I was looking through all of your recent exhibitions. They look great. Um, and you. <laughs> one, you are welcome. Loved. I mean, I am not there, so I can't see them, but they look excellent. And the two that caught my eye most in terms of being relevant for a discussion with a curator about curating kind of tricky subjects at a regional museum on a podcast about needlework, the, the two most relevant exhibitions are, I think, I could be wrong, Collecting Across Cultures, Japanese Textiles in the West, which we just discussed, and Sleep tight, exclamation point, love it. Um, Bed covers and hangings from around the world. First of all, may I say, very keen proponent of the use of exclamation points in titles. So when I saw that, I was really like, thank you for your service. Um, First of all, (laughs) so thanks for that. And second of all, can you tell me more about 
how that exhibition deals with themes like textile migration, tradition, collecting, anything else. I would love to, to learn more about it because it sounds like it's an exhibition that's really um, rife with conversations about these things. Definitely. Thanks. Yeah. So with Sleep Tight, the idea was I was really interested in doing an exhibition that would showcase the global nature of our collection and really highlight materials from around the world together in a way that, um, you know, might challenge assumptions or, you know, get people excited about, you know, looking at the similarities of, you know, certain traditions or ways different, different techniques are used in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'd been wanting to do something like that for a while. Um, and actually with the pandemic, we were looking more towards our own collection to create exhibitions just because that gave us a lot more flexibility. We do, we do bring in traveling exhibitions pretty regularly. And with the pandemic, it was just so hard to predict dates yeah. and, you know, all of these factors. So yeah, so the exhibition looked at some different processes used, um, textiles relating to marriage from marriage traditions from around the world. Cause often, you know, with this significant investment of bed textiles, either of labor or of paying someone else to make your bed textiles, um, just all of the thought and resources that went into them. This was often, you know, a marriage gift or related to, to marriage in some way. So that section was really exciting. Um, we included some Greek Island embroideries and yes. some Central Asian Suzanis, which technically are kind of multi-purpose. They're not necessarily hmm. bed specific, but it was such a great example. It was such a great opportunity to get them out. That and and the tech. I was really for me doing the research. I was so interested in how that tradition, you know, is is very similar in some ways to the the Greek Island embroidery tradition in terms of this being something that women and young women and their family members, their female family members are working together to prepare as part of a dowry essentially. And um, yeah, so I thought that was, and, and also having these very localized um, traditional motifs that, you know, seeing this kind of different ways that it emerges in different areas. So I thought, yeah, it was really beautiful to have those together. The section of the exhibition was about adapting tradition mm -hmm. and that section um, I don't know. I love all the sections, but I, I was especially excited about that one um, because it engaged with these ideas about migration and how people bring textile traditions and adapt them um, in new places. And so, so that section included Pennsylvania German materials um, in this region. You know, we have a lot of Pennsylvania German heritage yes. and, and we do have a strong collection of Pennsylvania German quilts and other textiles, cool. um, some embroidered pillow covers, that kind of thing. Mm. And, and also woven jacquard, jacquard yes. weaving, that yeah. kind of thing that are, you know, reflect these um, motifs and traditions that Pennsylvania Germans brought over from Germany and then kind of adapted to fit better in, you know, in their new home. Um, and also, you know, kind of looking at, I think a lot of people assume quilting is this very Pennsylvania German foundational thing. And actually, you know, it's quilting is actually a tradition that was brought to the U.S. by 
English and Dutch immigrants Mm -hmm. and the Pennsylvania Germans only adopted it um, by the like 1830s to 1850s when these inexpensive industrially made calicos became more affordable, more available. So it was almost kind of, you know, it was somewhat of a practical thing in some ways. There's definitely also, you know, the desire to be more fashionable or to follow the styles of, you know, urban women. Um, But also, you know, there's kind of a conservative tradition and more insular communities. So, um, you know, I thought it was really interesting to kind of disrupt that idea about, you know, this is that you can take something and make it your tradition and really own it in this way. Really? Um, yeah. And similarly with, um, and looking at Amish quilting, which didn't start until even later, like the 1880s. And so again, that kind of a similar story with the adoption of that, that tradition. And then, so that was paired with um, Hmong textiles from Southeast Asia and looking at how women, Hmong women have these, you know, really amazing applique and needlework traditions, um, traditionally used for clothing typically, and how those after the Vietnam War with displacement and the refugee situation, many Hmong women and also some men as well, turned these traditional textile arts into an income source and, you know, more of a commercial economic sense and we're making textiles to appeal to a Western audience. Mm-hmm. And so we included a, you know, some examples of traditional Hmong clothing as well as a bed cover made in a refugee camp in Thailand in the early nineties. And so I think that was really interesting because, um, you know, in dialogue with the Pennsylvania German quilts and also because I think, you know, there's a lot of pride in the Pennsylvania German heritage in this region. And I wanted people to think about more recent, more recent communities of immigrants or refugees and, and also the validity of, you know, changing, adapting tradition for, you know, due to practical external circumstances and how that can still be, you know, so valid and innovative and in creating and contributing to the the resilience of these art forms. There's a really interesting connection between um, Hmong refugee women who resettled in the Philadelphia area and the Amish community Uh, Many were actually hired by Amish quilters in the 80s and 90s in particular to to work on making Amish quilts because there was a huge boom in the demand for those. Um, And so and there was kind of this, you know, this mutual respect between um, the two communities. The for the Hmong women, it was a great source of income. it was, they could make more money doing this than their traditional textiles. And it was also easier. Um, And then for Amish women, the Hmong women were incredibly skilled um, because they'd done these very technical, traditional types of of needlework. And so, so it's a really interesting, you know, kind of dialogue between cultures. And um, yeah, it's hard because there are so many layers to the story. And when you get a wall label, it's like you have this much space. So it's, it's very tricky. Um, But I think, you know, there are so many different ways to think and talk about these textiles and bring together these stories. 
used the word at some point in your conversation about this, you used the word interrupting or interrupted or interruption. Mm -hmm. I just think that it's like such a good word for this conversation generally, because we, you know, the work you are doing and the work we are talking about is all about um, interrupting or changing or altering what people think of not only about a Pennsylvania German quilt and the tradition behind that. And the fact that it's not actually that traditional, it kind of became traditional, but also interrupting somebody's idea of what a museum should be, what museums should be displaying that you are putting, you know, a Frank Lloyd Wright room and putting that, like juxtaposing that with Japanese textiles and opportunity to create dialogues between objects that don't usually have conversations and interrupting the narrative by creating different narratives is just rad. What is your favorite needleworked object or objects? Great question. Yeah, it's good. The plural is good because it's mm. like picking a favorite child. Yes, and yes, it, yes, yes. I, you know, when people ask about my favorite object in the collection, it, it changes based on what I'm working on and what I'm excited about um, at that moment. You know, there are so many great things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite artists in our collection is Mildred Johnstone. Um, so she's, she was a local artist to this area. She lived in Bethlehem. Her husband was an executive at Bethlehem Steel. And so this was in, she started creating these amazing embroidered large scale works in the fifties. And she was just really interested in, she'd been on a lot of tours of the steel plant and was really fascinated by, you know, kind of the, the industrial scale of production, the, you know, this kind of modern industry versus the human scale, the people working there, um, and kind of, and also her place as a woman, you know, mm -hmm. kind of adjacent to this whole very male dominated industry. And so she created these beautiful tapestries. Um, she collaborated with several artists in creating the kind of the designs or the cartoons for them. And well, they're just amazing. They have these great mid-century modern um, kind of surreal geometric aesthetics than the, the blast furnaces. Um, and since we're airing around Christmas time, there's actually, yeah. so she, we have about 12 of her embroideries total. Oh, wow. And this is the one I was thinking of for our Christmassy Christmas time. Um, it's called Little Town of Bethlehem. Oh, I guess this is a, this is a detailed, we have the whole thing. Um, but she was really excited about, she attended the lighting of the Christmas tree um, at Bethlehem Steel. Oh my and God, that's so cute. It's just, it's this great composition. So you have the very sparkly Christmas tree and then these kind of surreal steel worker figures with their masks. So there's this kind of juxtaposition of like the, you know, the holiday tradition and then these, you know, kind of ominous or strange um, figures and the silhouette of the steel mills in the background. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's so fun. And her work, you know, I think she really, her work really deserves consideration on, you know, of, of a national, national scale caliber mm -hmm. with the studio craft movement, 
these themes that she's engaging with that other artists are considering, um, you know, the feminism, looking at industry and modern life and alienation. Um, she has some where she depicts herself um, or, or depicts these themes of like a bride with a blast furnace or um, the, the woman as an ingot being shaped by, you know, this idea of reforming and the pressure that molds and, so, so yeah, her work is so amazing. I'm a huge booster for her. <laughs> yes, I'm Mildred. very excited about her work. Also, great connection to the holiday time release of this episode. Yes. Thank you, Mildred. <laughs> and I was not expecting this to be a theme throughout this interview, but actually it is, and it's really quite cool. This idea of textiles um, that engage with technology. How can people learn more about your work? And do you have anything you'd like to promote? or anything else, just pitch yourself to the SOA community if you would like to. <laughs> definitely. So yeah, if you're in Pencil if you're in Eastern Pennsylvania, definitely come out to the museum. Um, I'm always boosting and trying to get the textiles on view. So we always have something in our galleries um, and we're working on that reinstallation of our American collections, which is going to incorporate textiles into our permanent collection galleries with the fine art. It's going to be great bringing stuff together. Textiles deserve to be there. So yes, they do. It's really exciting. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's coming up um, next year. And then the other thing um, more immediately is that you can check out the museum's social media um, from anywhere in the world. And we usually feel te feature textiles, um, you know, at least once, if not multiple times a month partially because I work on that. Oh, hey. Um, and <laughs> yes, and we've also, we've been doing these Textile Tuesday live videos um, since the spring, which have been really fun um, and are just kind of an informal look at, you know, something in our galleries or our collection um, and just a great way to be able to share a little bit more in-depth information, um, in, you know, in a really accessible way. So yeah, so look out for Textile Tuesdays. Claire, it has been a joy and a treat and really, truly so informative. So thank you very much for this wonderful interview. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been so fun to talk to another textile, textile nerd excitement. Yes. You know, just all of the love for textiles is so wonderful and really a joy to have. That was a jam-packed interview. Wow. Yes, we love to see it. Thank you to Claire for sharing so much of her knowledge with me. Interviews are really fun for many reasons, but one of them is that you always learn fun facts you don't expect. My favorite fun fact from this episode is the Amish Hmong Women Quilt Collaboration. How rad! This was a very chunky episode, so I'll summarize some of what we learned from Claire about curating textiles at a regional museum. Smaller museums allow curators to work with a whole variety of objects, which gives them the opportunity to create exhibitions that allow for more atypical and therefore more thought-provoking juxtapositions of objects. These opportunities allow curators to create more diverse and inclusive narratives and opportunities to discuss thorny issues like rich white folks collecting objects from their quote-unquote exotic travels. And how do you pack in all this information into an exhibition's little wall texts and object labels while also making the display accessible, easy to digest, and compelling? 
there's a lot to contend with and many things to juggle. Besides that, there's a lot of themes and ideas in this episode to mull over. Here are two that kept coming up. Textile interruption and interaction, and textiles and technology. Those are two really different concepts, but they have a surprising amount of intersection, too. Technology has done much to interrupt and interact with the production of textiles, especially within the last few hundred years. I'm thinking specifically with the Industrial Revolution and things like lace and knit goods suddenly being made by machine rather than by hand, but I'm also thinking of more recent interventions like leather made out of pineapples. Something that is fascinating but not often talked about on this podcast is how attitudes toward textiles and technology change. For the 1920s silk designers and for Mildred Johnstone, Technology was awe-inspiring and full of wonder, but just before that, as I mentioned in this season's mini-episode on Eastern European folk dress, there was fear that technological advancement and change would bring about the loss of needlecraft traditions. I think the huge boom in needlework during the pandemic, the uptick in embroidery, knitting, and crochet, and all that good stuff, also speaks to changing attitudes toward textiles and technology. All the needlework that's happening now isn't motivated by the fear that technology would wipe out traditions, but rather technology fatigue. We are all on Zoom meetings all the time, always checking our phones, and staring at screens all day is exhausting. Stitching is slower and more controlled, yes, but it is also a break for our eyes and our brains. I like that these opportunities are another form of interruption, a way to interrupt our technology-filled lives. That's a very different kind of interruption from curating textiles in inventive, thought-provoking, and more inclusive ways, as Claire does, but it is an interruption nonetheless. There are lots of intersections between interruption, technology, and textiles, but maybe I'll stop there. I'll leave you with that so you can think about textiles and technology and how textile narratives and displays should and can be interrupted how typical museum and gallery displays should be altered to create more engaging, diverse, and radical displays. So yeah, that's it for me this week. As always, thank you for listening, and expect a special festive season episode to drop in the next few days. The So What podcast is busy this month. See you soon. Now go out and stitch some stories and sleep tight. Bye! Thank you.